Welcome to Idlewild Cottage, a quiet place where kindred spirits can linger together over a cup of tea, savoring all things lovely and cozy. My name is Juliana, and I'm delighted to have you. Each episode here at the cottage will center around a theme. That theme will be celebrated in a number of ways, through literature, art, nature, and even some favorite movie scenes, we'll cherish the sweet and simple things of life. So make yourself at home, and I'll put the kettle on. If you were with us last week, you may recall the scenes with Frightful the Falcon preening her feathers, and also Mary Lennox's Robin friend showing off his sleek red waistcoat. As spring skips along in riotous color, so our literary friends primp, preen, and put on their finest in today's episode. Now, we have just two more episodes in our spring series. So today, let's imagine ourselves dressed in our sweetest organdy frocks with parasols swinging and hats nodding as we cherish a fleeting visit on the Idlewild Cottage veranda. We'll step into six scenes as several book characters prepare for various events. We'll also note how fashion changes along the way. Let's begin with the 1860s and 70s when skirts were at their height in width. A few moments stand out especially from Little House in the Big Woods, Little Women, and Gone with the Wind. Let's first join Laura, who is quietly admiring her aunts as they prepare for the dance at Grandpa's. Laura sat on their bed and watched them comb out their long hair and part it carefully. They parted it from their foreheads to the napes of their necks, and then they parted it across from ear to ear. They braided their back hair in long braids, and then they did the braids up carefully in big knots. Then they pulled on their beautiful white stockings and they buttoned up their best shoes. They helped each other with their corsets. Aunt Dosha pulled as hard as she could on Aunt Ruby's corset strings, and then Aunt Dosha hung on to the foot of the bed while Aunt Ruby pulled on hers. Then Aunt Ruby and Aunt Dosha put on their flannel petticoats and their plain petticoats and their stiff, starched white petticoats with knitted lace all around the flounces, and they put on their beautiful dresses. Aunt Dosha's dress was a sprigged print, dark blue, with sprigs of red flowers and green leaves thick upon it. Aunt Ruby's dress was wine-colored calico, covered all over with a feathery pattern in lighter wine color. They looked lovely, sailing over the floor so smoothly with their large, round skirts. Next, we find Meg in the memorable Chapter 9 of Little Women, aptly titled Vanity Fair. Meg is dissatisfied with her homespun garments while visiting the fashionable Moffats and agrees to let the girls dress her for a party, though, true to Alcott's heroines, she ultimately sees the folly in focusing more on her dress than on her character. On Thursday evening, Belle shut herself up with her maid, and between them they turned Meg into a fine lady. They crimped and curled her hair, they polished her neck and arms with some fragrant powder and touched her lips with salve to make them redder. 
They laced her into a sky-blue dress, which was so tight she could hardly breathe, and so low in the neck that modest Meg blushed at herself in the mirror. A set of filigree was added, bracelets, necklace, brooch, and even earrings tied on with a bit of pink silk which did not show. A cluster of tea-rose buds at the bosom and a ruche reconciled Meg to the display of her pretty white shoulders, and a pair of high-heeled silk boots satisfied the last wish of her heart. A lace handkerchief, a plumy fan, and a bouquet in a shoulder holder finished her off and Miss Bell surveyed her with the satisfaction of a little girl with a newly dressed doll. Come and show yourself, said Bell, leading the way to the room where the others were waiting. As Meg went rustling after, with her long skirts trailing, her earrings tinkling, her curls waving, and her heart beating, she felt as if her fun had really begun at last, for the mirror had plainly told her that she was a little beauty. Her friends repeated the pleasing phrase enthusiastically, and for several minutes she stood like a jackdaw in the fable, enjoying her borrowed plumes while the rest chattered like a party of magpies. As we travel to the south, we find the iconic gown scene in which Scarlet O'Hara primps and preens in reduced yet determined circumstances, and, I might add, has absolutely no hint of Meg March's ultimate regret. Scarlet is out to save Tara and devises a plan to approach Rhett Butler, dressed apparently in her finest, which we know to actually be curtains from the parlor. After supper had been cleared away, Scarlet and Mammy spread patterns on the dining room table while Sue Ellen and Corrine busily ripped satin linings from curtains and Melanie brushed the velvet with a clean hairbrush to remove the dust. The girls were as excited as if preparing for a ball and they ripped and cut and basted as if making a ball dress of their own. Sue Ellen, moved to generosity by the party spirit of the occasion, produced her Irish lace collar and Corrine insisted that Scarlet wear her slippers. Melanie begged Mammy to leave her enough velvet scraps to recover the frame of her battered bonnet, and brought shouts of laughter when she said the old rooster was going to part with his gorgeous bronze and green-black tail feathers. We later pick up as Scarlet prepares to meet Rhett. Dressing unaided was difficult, but she finally accomplished it, and putting on the bonnet with its rakish feathers, she ran to Aunt Pity's room to preen herself in front of the long mirror. How pretty she looked! The cock feathers gave her a dashing air, and the dull green velvet of the bonnet made her eyes startlingly bright, almost emerald-colored. And the dress was incomparable, so rich and handsome-looking, and yet so dignified. It was wonderful to have a lovely dress again. Now, as we transition to the 20th century, we see a drastic shift in the fashion world. Skirts narrow and gradually shorten, and the bonnet, as we see in Betsy in spite of herself, has been replaced with the wide-brimmed hat. Slowly, the world was getting dressed for spring, and so were the girls in the crowd. Talk was all of new suits and hats, especially hats. The Merry Widow hat had made its appearance this spring. It was as devastating as the waltz. Merry Widow hats were sailors, very wide, the wider, the better. 
Miss Mix was at the Ray House making Easter outfits, and her visit was as confusing as the weather. The house was filled with the hum of the sewing machine. There were fittings and conferences, pins in the mouth, bright scraps and snarls of thread, touchy tempers and company meals. Everyone was heartily glad to see her go, although she left lovely things behind. For Betsy, it was a suit, her first suit, blue serge piped with green. Her merry widow hat was blue, extravagantly wide, trimmed with green ribbon. Betsy doted on that outfit. Now Betsy and her sisters knew how to tastefully dress for the season. A peek into the Avonlea school on Anne's first day of teaching suggests that a certain parent might be a tad overdressed. From Anne of Avonlea, we read, When school was dismissed and the children had gone, Anne dropped wearily into her chair. She was very tired and inclined to believe that she would never learn to like teaching. All at once there was a click of heels and a silken swish on the porch floor, and Anne found herself confronted by a lady whose appearance made her recall a recent criticism of Mr. Harrison's on an overdressed female he had seen in a Charlottetown store. She looked like a head-on collision between a fashion plate and a nightmare. The newcomer was gorgeously arrayed in a pale blue summer silk, puffed, frilled, and shirred wherever puff, frill, or shirring could possibly be placed. Her head was surmounted by a huge white chiffon hat, bedecked with three long but rather stringy ostrich feathers. A veil of pink chiffon hung like a flounce from the hat brim to her shoulders and floated off in two airy streamers behind her. She wore all the jewelry that could be crowded onto one small woman, and a very strong odor of perfume attended her. I am Mrs. Donnell, Mrs. H. B. Donnell, announced this vision, and I have come in to see you about something Clarice Almira told me when she came home to dinner today. It annoyed me excessively. I I'm sorry, faltered Anne, vainly trying to recollect any incident of the morning connected with the children. Clarice Salmira told me that you pronounced our name Donnell. Now, Miss Shirley, the correct pronunciation of our name is Donnell. Accent on the last syllable. I hope you'll remember this in future. I'll try to, gasped Anne, choking back a wild desire to laugh. 1903 St. Louis brings us once again to a familiar scene, one that often plays out in literature. As we opened with Laura admiring her aunts from the nearby bed, so we close with Agnes and Tootie Smith admiring their mother as she dresses for a party in the book Meet Me in St. Louis. Agnes and Tootie sat on the bed in their mother's room and watched her as she dressed. She wore a starched white corset cover and a white petticoat with ruffles. Mrs. Smith went to the closet and took out a dress. It was carefully covered with an old sheet, and the two little girls knew it was the dress Aunt Emma had sent their mother from Paris. It was made of shell pink satin covered with black lace. Agnes set to work on the innumerable hooks and eyes. When the dress was fastened, 
She stood back and looked at herself in the mirror. She looked young, pretty, and shining. Now, Tootie, she said, you can open the jicky bottle. Tootie got down from the bed and walked over to the bureau. There was something ceremonial in the way she handled the perfume bottle and took out the glass stopper. Her mother touched the stopper lightly to her dress and hair. And then, tipping the bottle, holding her finger over the opening until it was wet with perfume, she brushed it lightly through Agnes's soft brown hair. Tootie stood silently by until her mother, repeating the familiar action, ran her hand through her short curls. Agnes rubbed her head against her mother's dress. I wish you looked this way all the time, she said. And friends, if you wish that you too could enjoy dresses like this all the time, you might like the following musicals, which vibrantly highlight fashion of the late 1800s and early 1900s. Hello, Dolly, starring Barbara Streisand, is set in 1890s New York. Of course, there's Meet Me in St. Louis, which follows the Smith family throughout the year 1903. Summer Magic is set in the country at about the same time, and from the 1910s on, we have Mary Poppins, The Music Man, and My Fair Lady. I will also add that Anne of Green Gables, the sequel, has some fantastic fashion moments for Megan Follows as Anne Shirley. Happy reading and happy watching, my friends. As we close our time together today, Let's remember this most fitting encouragement from Matthew chapter 6. Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Friends, it is my prayer that you too would know how wonderfully you are loved and cared for. Thank you for joining me today, dear ones. Please come again soon to Idlewild Cottage. <laughs>